we dealt with the sacrament of baptism last time, we read from Article 34 of the Belgian Confession and also included the first part of Lord's Day 27. Let's now read together what we confess in the Belgian Confession in that last part of Article 34. You can find that on page 467 of your book of praise. We will read from that last paragraph on the bottom of page 467. There we find God's word summarized as follows. We believe, therefore, that anyone who aspires to eternal life ought to be baptized only once. Baptism should never be repeated, for we cannot be born twice. Moreover, baptism benefits us not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our whole life. For that reason, we reject the error of the Anabaptists, who are not content with a single baptism received only once and who also condemn the baptism of the little children of believers. We believe that these children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant as infants were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises which are now made to our children. Indeed, Christ shed his blood to wash the children of believers just as much as he shed it for adults. Therefore, they ought to receive the sign and the sacrament of what Christ has done for them, as the Lord commanded in the law that the Lamb was to be offered shortly after children were born. This was a sacrament of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, because baptism has the same meaning for our children as circumcision had for the people of Israel. Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. Colossians 2, verse 11. And now let's read what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 27, question and answer 74. That's on page 503. There we find God's word summarized as follows. Should infants too be baptized? Yes, Infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as sign of the covenant, they must be grafted into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. After the sermon, we will respond by singing from Psalm 71, the stances 3, 9, and 10. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, and that includes you boys and girls, This afternoon, we deal with the position of children. It is an important subject, especially considering that a very large part, almost half of our membership, consists of children. 
We could not imagine the church here in Edmonton without the blessing of those children. And yet when it comes to the preaching, they are not often dealt with as a separate group. The church service is more geared to adults, although we do try to include them as much as possible. But it is good that this afternoon the children of this congregation have our attention. Children are essential to the well-being of the church. Without children, there is no future for the church. For that reason, we are very actively engaged in the instruction of our youth. The parents, as we can hear every time a child is baptized, make the promise to instruct their children and to have them instructed in the doctrine of the Old and the New Testament and as they are summarized in the confessions. And what are the children taught? One of the most important things that they are taught is that they belong. And that is also what the Catechism starts with. In Lord's Day 1, they are taught to repeat, I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that theme is continued throughout the whole Catechism. Lord's Day 21 especially comes to mind. With respect to the church, they are taught to say, and I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. Now, most people do not have difficulty with the fact that we state that children belong to the church. That stands to reason. You come, you become a member of the church by virtue of your parents. Since they belong, their children belong as well. And that's true. However, we should be careful that human bonds do not come before spiritual bonds, as we also saw this morning. Scripture teaches us that our belonging is because of Christ. The first bond is the bond we have with him. Everything else is secondary. Baptism declares us to be members of Christ. That is what is all important. And that is what we will deal with this afternoon. I've summarized this question and answer as follows. Our children belong to Christ and his church. Our relationship to God the Father through Christ is the most important relationship. Therefore, the relationship of a mother and a father with their child has no meaning apart from Christ. And that is clear from the first pages of the Bible already. Right after the fall into sin, the Lord God gave the promise that Satan would be destroyed, that his kingdom will fail. But he also said that from then on in, there will be two kinds of seed, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Both those seeds, however, come forth from the woman. Eve bore children for Satan and children for God. For example, she bore both Cain and Abel. The one served Satan, the other served God. The one was saved, the other was not. And so we see that the bond with believing parents does not guarantee the bond with the Lord our God. 
That did not mean that the promises made to Adam and Eve did not include all their children. Oh yes, and both Abel and Cain were included. Cain, however, rejected God's promises. Abel did not. And so it is understandable that there are those who claim that you do not know whether you belong or not until you are an adult. And that is what those who believe in adult baptism only teach. They say you first must show that you are a believer. Only then can it be said that you are or that you belong to God's people. Many churches teach that. The well-known theologian Karl Barth was of the same mind. He noted that there are many people in this day and age who were baptized as children, but who as adults had hardly ever seen the inside of a church. Their parents wanted their children to be a member of the church in which they grew up, and of which their parents and grandparents had been a member, and thus had been baptized as infants, in order that they could also be members of that same church. Karl Barth considered that to be a terrible thing. He used a peculiar image in order to make his point. He said, the baptism of children is like an execution without a victim. By that he meant that if there is no faith, you cannot baptize. Without faith, you cannot be a child of God, just as without a victim, you cannot have an execution. You need both. No doubt you will have also heard such arguments. And one thing they're right about. It is a terrible thing that churches allow the baptism of infants to be abused in this manner. If you do not want to live as a Christian, you should not pretend that you are one by virtue of your baptism. Those churches who baptize children without the commitment of the parents to also live as Christians make a mockery of this sacrament. And that is why they have to be members of the church before their children can be baptized. We, in our attempt to be faithful, to be a faithful church of God, had better take it to heart what Karl Barth is saying there. Just because a child is born of the covenant does not mean that now God does not hold us and our children responsible to him. On the contrary, because we do belong, we must be all the more zealous in serving him. However, just because there are those who abuse this sacrament does not mean that now baptism of infants has to be abolished. All sacred institutions are subject to abuse. We all have to be called to faithfulness. Those who favor the baptism of believers only also use other arguments for their position. One of their main arguments is that the Bible does not teach anywhere that children ought to be baptized. Nowhere, they say, does the Lord command that. And also in that regard, they are right. The well-known Charles Spurgeon, who was very influential in England and North America because of his preaching and his many books, he was also and convinced by that argument. As a young man of 15, he was challenged by a Baptist teacher at the Anglican college he was attending. 
He challenged them and the rest of the class to find one passage in the Bible where it says that infants must be baptized. He and the rest of his class could find could not find any such text, of course. And so Spurgeon became convinced that baptism is for adult believers only. Now, we can learn a lot from Spurgeon, but in this regard he was wrong. For you see, to say that this command is not found in the scriptures is a very weak argument. All of scripture shows us that children do belong to God's covenant community. We have to be keen students of the Bible. The Lord God does not just give us isolated pieces of information. No, they're all connected. And so when we are dealing with baptism, we have to take all of God's word into account. And there are many things that God does not specifically command. He does not command, for example, that women partake of the Lord's Supper. Nowhere will you find that command in the scriptures. Yet women do partake. They too belong to God's covenant. They too are members of the church. We would not think of excluding them. What then do the scriptures teach? Well, let's look at the catechism, which bases its answer on the word of God. The first statement the catechism uses in favor of infant baptism is that infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Children belong by virtue of God's covenant. The composers of the catechism do not just suck that out of their thumb. No, they base this on scripture itself. As proof text, the catechism refers us to Genesis 17 verse 7. It says there, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Look at the context. As you know, the Lord God says this to Abram. He is an old man already, 99 years old. In chapter 17, the Lord first introduces himself to Abram as God Almighty. And that is the first time in the history of Revelation that he does so. Before that, he only referred to himself as God, Elohim in Hebrew, or as Lord, Yahweh in Hebrew. Now here he also makes himself known as the Almighty God. Why does he do so now? Well, a miracle is about to take place, for he is going to do three important things. In the first place, he is going to give Abram and his wife Sarah a child in their old age. Only God can do that. Humanly speaking, that was impossible. Old people are no longer able to have children. And that's the first thing that the Lord does. He is going to cause a miracle to happen. In the second place, he also establishes his covenant with Abram. He had established that with him before, as we know from chapter 15. But now here in chapter 17, he spells out exactly what that means. There is a promise but also a demand. And in the third place, there's also the sign of the covenant, namely circumcision. 
Now, exactly what is so miraculous in all this? Is it only because of the impending birth of a child to an old couple? No, there is something much greater here. It is the promises that he makes. The promises that he makes to Abraham. Because of that promise, he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude. Now Abraham's identity is derived through his offspring. Before it was the other way around. For Abram means my father is great. First he was named after the greatness of his father. Now he is named because of the multitude of his offspring. For the Lord says to him, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. And note well that there is spoken here of nations, plural. The blessing to Abraham is not just meant for Israel, but for all the nations of the world. And that promise was fulfilled especially in the New Testament at Pentecost. That is the great miracle. All the nations will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. For the Lord continues further by stating, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Brothers and sisters, if you want to understand the institution of baptism, if you want to understand why children must also be baptized, if you want to understand what the significance of the parents is in all this, and the place of our Lord God in this, then you must first understand the institution of circumcision. For note well that the catechism claims that circumcision has been replaced by baptism in the New Testament. And that is the strongest argument that the Heidelberg Catechism makes in favor of infant baptism. But can the catechism make that claim? Well, as proof text, the catechism refers us to Colossians 2, the verses 11 through 13. And there Paul makes a clear connection between circumcision and baptism. He calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. It is a circumcision not made with the hands of men. It is a clear reference to baptism. For it speaks about its circumcision done by Christ. And what is that? Well, it has to do with having been buried with him in baptism, as Paul says, and raised with him through faith in the power of God. Now then, note well that the Lord God gave circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And with whom is that covenant? It is with Abraham and his seed. His children are included. Indeed, anyone who is part of his household must receive the sign and the seal of the covenant. There are no exceptions. All those who have been made part of the household as servants as well. In those days, a servant was very closely tied to his master. He became a permanent part of the household. 
For that reason also the servants had to receive the promises of God as sealed and signed in the sacrament of circumcision. And therefore in the New Testament church it is also the practice to have adopted children baptized as well. They too receive the sign and the seal of baptism. Note well that in the New Testament no less than on five occasions whole households were baptized. Do you think that children would not have been included? Can you imagine a household without children? In rare occasions that may occur. But would that be the case in all five cases mentioned in the New Testament? That's highly unlikely. The Lord told Abraham that each male each male child, eight days after he is born, is to receive the sign of the covenant. That means that the father, when the child is but a newborn baby, takes a very sharp knife and cuts his son in the most vulnerable part of his anatomy and cuts away the foreskin. From that day forward, the child would bear the sign and the seal of the covenant in his flesh. Every time he would be reminded of the promises of the Lord his God. He too is a child of Abraham, that is, a child of God. For the blessings promised to Abraham also apply to him. And now in the New Testament, that sign has been replaced by baptism. It is called the circumcision of Christ. God's people is not just a nation made of adults. No, it is made up of young and old. J.I. Packer, in his book, Concise Theology, also discusses the matter of baptism. At the end of his defense of infant baptism, he writes that the whole debate comes down to a single issue. How does God define his church? In other words, who belong to God's covenant, to the church of God? Believing adults only, as many churches claim, or believing adults as well as their children. And do children of believers also belong to God's covenant and his church in the New Testament? That, he says, is what the basic issue is. Well, children are as much part of God's church as adults. Indeed, the promise is to them. And that is also what Peter said at the time of Pentecost. There he speaks about the promises of God in Acts 2, being proclaimed to believers and their children. He says in Acts 2, verse 39, The promise is for you and your children and for all who far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Oh sure, he first gives the command for the people to repent and then to be baptized, and that's understandable. He is speaking to adults. But then he also includes the children as he is speaking to them. The same thing the Lord God did when he spoke to Abraham. First he says to him in Genesis 17, verse 1, Walk before me and be blameless. And in verse 9, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. What does the Lord God tell him? To take his covenant seriously. But after he tells them that, he also includes the children in his covenant. The children did not hear those words. 
They could not yet believe and repent, and yet they too are included. But those who hold to believer baptism only will counter. It may be true that in Colossians 2, Paul compares circumcision to baptism, yet the connection is only a spiritual one. Circumcision is an outward sign. Baptism isn't. But that argument doesn't hold water either. For listen to what Jeremiah says, for example, in chapter 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. The foreskin of the male child was cut off and thrown away to indicate that sin had to be removed. And thus it is also a sign of the necessity of the removal of sin in one's inner being, one's very heart. Circumcision is therefore also an inward sign. There's, of course, a difference between circumcision and baptism. Now, in the New Testament, blood no longer has to flow. The knife does not have to be used in order to indicate what the covenant is all about. For Christ has shed his blood on Golgotha. Circumcision looked forward to the shedding of the blood of Christ. It looked forward to the once-for-all sacrifice of the suffering servant on our behalf. Baptism now looks back at what Christ has done. He has shed his blood for Abraham and his seed. But now the seed of Abraham is included in the sign and the seal of the covenant through baptism. For who is Abraham, brothers and sisters? What do the scriptures call him? Well, they call him the father of all believers. The promise was made to him and his descendants. The sign and the seal are given, therefore, to children. They belong. They belong to God's people. They belong to God's church. But some of you may say, do we have to take all that seriously? I mean, it sounds kind of complicated. Can we not live peaceably with those who think differently about this? Can we not call a truce between them and us? Well, we don't judge them. God does. He judges all of us. There are many good Christians among them, as there are also among us. But that's not the point. The Lord requires obedience to his ordinances. And God gives you and me a responsibility. And so let us consider, how seriously does the Lord God himself take the sign and the seal of the covenant? Well, he said to Abraham, if they don't have that sign and seal of the covenant, they will be cut off from my people. You all know the story about Moses as it is recorded in Exodus 4, verse 24 and following. Moses was about to die. For Moses had neglected something very important. He had neglected to circumcise his sons. And so his wife Zipporah did it for him. And then she said to him, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. The Lord takes his covenant very seriously, brothers and sisters. And thus we must do the same thing. What a wonderful thing it is that the Lord God has instituted the sacraments of circumcision and of baptism. Now parents can come and present their children to the Lord and have the Lord's proclamation made to them that they too are God's children. 
The Lord promises that he will remove their sins. He makes that promise to them even before they are able to believe. And believing parents can also have the comfort that all the promises of God also accrue to their children, even if they die in infancy. Our children are children of the Lord. Can you imagine if he did not have that assurance? Can you imagine if David did not have that assurance when his son was about to die? The son that he had through adultery with Bathsheba. Can you imagine if the Lord would leave the parents wondering about the salvation of their children? The Lord Jesus, you know that from Matthew 18 and elsewhere, told the children to come to him. He did not want to exclude them. When God makes his promises, he declares them first of all to be his children. A child belongs to him for they belong to believing parents. He knows each and every one of us before we are even born. He knew us even before the creation of the world. The parents are only the vessels he uses for the increase of his people. God comes before the parents. That doesn't mean that the parents don't have a role to play. They certainly do. A very important one. But their role is not to keep them as part of their own family in the first place, but to keep them part of God's family. Abraham had many children. Also the nation Israel was born out of him. But not all of Abraham's offspring were children of God. Many rejected God. It is the role of the parent to keep their children as partakers of God's covenant. They must teach them what it means to be a child of God and to be a member of God's people. And only in this way will the Lord continue to bless in the generations. God is always number one in our lives. And brothers and sisters, boys and girls, how blessed we are to be called children of God. Amen.